Hey listener, thanks for joining us for TRP's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are currently teaching through the book of Exodus. It's an important ancient story about God rescuing the Hebrew people from forced labor in Egypt. This story informs much of what Israel believed about God, and it recurs throughout the Old Testament. The themes sounded in the story ultimately reach their climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who leads people out of a different form of slavery and oppression into life and hope. If you would like more information on the Restoration Project, you can check us out on Facebook or head over to our website at RestoreSBY.org. Enjoy the episode. So guys, uh, for those of you that have been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we've been studying the book of Exodus, and you know that we have finally reached the climactic moment. Last week when we left off, um, Israel had left Egypt, their place of slavery and servitude for a number of years where they were just under the thumb of the various rulers of the time. In our particular text, we're looking at uh, the king of Egypt or Pharaoh that has been oppressing these people uh, for quite some time. And the way that God is leading them out, you can see that it is through a powerful hand. Even though as 21st century postmodern American readers of scripture, some of these stories uh, are difficult for us to stomach perhaps, Um, but we've seen how in its historical context, this is an epic battle, if you will, between God and between Pharaoh, and maybe even more than that, between God and the gods of the Egyptians at this time. And God has demonstrated himself to be one uh, with power and authority, and he is leading his people out, and we are on the cusp of that this evening. So I'm going to read you an entire chapter of God's word from Exodus chapter 14. I did time myself reading this this morning, and it took me four minutes and about 35 seconds, okay? So uh, a good teacher probably would not lead with that, um, but I want you guys to know what you're getting into, okay? I'll try to inflect some voices and do some fun things to keep us interested, but hopefully God's word can sustain us, which I believe that it can. This is Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse one. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Haheroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with them, uh, the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Haheroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, 
Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. The word of God for the people of God. I know that this is a familiar story, especially for people that have spent any amount of time in the church. Um, this is a story that we have grown up with. This is a story that has been put on the flannel graph, if that means anything to you. This is a story that has been veggie This is a story that you know inside and out. For maybe the 35s and up, and yes, I'm going to put myself in this group, even though I've never seen this movie, perhaps your best summary of the Exodus story is this image right here with Charlton Heston spreading out his arms and the sea just miraculously spread, uh, splits apart. I watched this on YouTube this morning because I figured if I've never seen this movie, I at least needed to watch this scene. And let me just tell you, the CGI back then, guys, comical, but also groundbreaking probably at the time. 
okay? There's a reason why this movie keeps coming on, but for some of us, this is, this is where we attain lots of our information is these sorts of stories. And now for the 35s and under, perhaps your knowledge base is more dependent upon the Prince of Egypt. This isn't from the movie. This is a storyboard of one of the animators, key animators from, from the movie. I think it's kind of nice though. But this image of, of Moses, and you can tell within this story, and yes, I did YouTube this as well just to get a frame of reference. We have Israel that's uh, leading up to the brink of the sea. And the Egyptian army is like hightailing it behind them until God blasts this monstrous fireball that kind of spreads out and keeps Egypt away from, from Israel. Kind of in the text, but not necessarily. And Moses very stoically in the movie, The Prince of Egypt, which is what I'm basing this next two minutes of teaching on, very stoically and without a word from the Lord, walks into the water, raises his staff, and remembers the Lord saying to him, Moses, with this staff, you will do great wonders. And then he jams it into the sea and it splits apart like crazy. And that's not in the story at all, but it makes for good animation, doesn't it? It's great. But we have these images of this, this story and the, the pursuit of the Egyptian army and Israel and what they're going to do and, and how they can um, avoid this catastrophe that seems to be nowhere to go in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them. Yet again, we see, and I don't have this built into the sermon, so I'm going to at least address it here, Pharaoh changing his mind yet again after the 10 plagues where he's kind of playing with Israel's emotions like, yeah, you can go, but then no. And here again, it, it, it's says that when they realized that they were gone, and some people want to say that this is different than um, what they had sent them out to do, they still thought that they were going to go out for three days into the wilderness to worship the Lord. But when they really figured out that they weren't coming back, it says their minds changed with regard to Israel. And they realized that the, the workforce that they had, they lost it. And even in spite of the death of their children, they said, I want those people back to build my empire. It's this crazy moment, but we do have Pharaoh and his army. It says that they select 600 of the choicest chariots. And then it says, oddly, and all of the other chariots. And I just want to think, like, okay, so what separates the 600 choice chariots from all of the other chariots that he has at his disposal? They're all, they're all going. But either way, this is like a, a large-scale military force where they are attempting to get these people back. Now we have this story lodged into our brains and whatever it is that we know, whatever it is that we think that we know, the scholars want to help us to pause here for a moment and say it's very smart things like the story of the sea crossing is a text of considerable complexity. And before we launch right into the Prince of Egypt or into Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments or into our best Sunday school or Veggie Tales remembrance of this story, they at least want us to stop here for a second and recognize a few difficulties that are present within this passage. For instance, there's this uh, difficulty of squaring the retelling of the story in Exodus chapter 14, this narrative of the Red Sea crossing with this poetic remembrance in the next chapter. We're going to spend our time next week talking about um, Exodus chapter 15 and the song of the sea where Moses and Miriam are leading the people and, and helping them to understand what has gone on here theologically and even uh, with regard to, mm, you're not going to like this, but to the myths that were uh, current at that time. But here tonight, it's, it's a little bit different, but understanding the differences between those two and also understanding the historical issues that keep popping up in our text, all these place names that I read so eloquently, 
I was proud of myself. I'm like reading and also in part of my mind thinking like, that came out really good, nice job. You even read it kind of quickly. So it really made it seem like you knew what you were talking about. Pihiroth and Beelzephon. Okay, like those sorts of things. Like nobody knows where they are. Nobody even knows where they were crossing in the Red Sea or if it should be better understood as the Reed Sea or a different part of this body of water. Nobody really knows the historical nature of what's going on in this passage. And also just to uh, inform you and just to give you a little bit more to chew on, there's also some source critical issues which is nerd speak for some people think that there's a bunch of different sources that have combined to make one source. And I don't know if you guys were like focusing in as I was reading, there's one very clear difficulty in this passage. Very clearly it says that when the Israelites see what's coming behind them, they see the sea in front of them and then they look behind and they have the Egyptian army that's coming toward them. They begin to cry out to Yahweh. It doesn't record that in the text. It just says they're terrified and they cry out to Yahweh. Same word that's used way back earlier when they're enslaved and they're crying out. This is like an agonizing term here. They've got nothing else to do. And we'll talk about this a bit later. But then they immediately start talking to Moses. It says they cry out to God. And then the next sentence is, and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? Were there no graves in Egypt? What's wrong with you, Moses? Like, it doesn't say anything about Yahweh. It just launches into Moses. And then Moses says, okay, calm, relax, channel your inner prince of Egypt walking into the sea and just deal with these people. He says, do not be afraid. Take your stand. You will see salvation today. Like Moses is addressing their issues. So the Israelites are complaining and crying to Moses and Moses is, it's okay, do not fear. And then in the very next verse, I don't know if you caught this, God says to Moses, why are you crying to me, Moses? Do you see what I'm saying? Israel is crying to Moses and Moses is saying, it's okay. And then God says, Moses, what's wrong with you? It just does, it seems to, it doesn't seem to fit in the story. So scholars have said that maybe there's some issues here with how this story is pieced together. And this is the kind of stuff that scholars love to do. Stuff that doesn't really translate here to you guys in the seats, because as you're sitting here, you're thinking, I do not really care about this because it doesn't seem to have a whole lot of relevance for my life, to which I say, you're right. (laughs) I just happen to be kind of excited about it because it's interesting. But for them, this this is the stuff that really keeps their, their, their minds going. And it's at least something that they want to say. This text has considerable complexity because of these issues. Also, and let's see if I can break this down for you. Um, This is a liturgical text, meaning this is a text that functions within Israelite worship from very early on. Some people would even say that Exodus 15 is like an earlier version of this story that has been um, sung throughout centuries within ancient Israelite worship. But they're saying that this story of God leading his people through the Red Sea miraculously with Moses and his staff out in front and then the sea covering over the Egyptians and they just kind of get undertaken by the water. This is a text that has so much meaning for the Jewish people. This is a story that to this day, it still has massive amounts of significance. But before we jump to today, this is a story that's retold a lot throughout the Old Testament. This is something that Israelite people keep going back to, to say like, God, you delivered us back then. You did this great climactic work back then, deliver us here and now. And people would even say this within um, an individual setting. 
God, I'm in the midst of the pit. I've got nowhere to go. I've got nowhere to, to, no one to trust, nothing to do. I don't know what's going on here, but I remember this thing that you did way back then. Do it again for me here now. So the fact that this is a liturgical text, it also added some considerable complexity because people don't really know how to do with it, specifically with regard to, and I keep coming back to this, and I got to apologize, partly, although I think that this is part of my due diligence as well, um, this idea that it's a liturgical text, it, it does cause us to pause and ask some important historical questions. Now today, as I talk about this passage, I want to um, frame our talk this evening around this painting of Renoir. I didn't even happen to look at what the title is, but this is somewhat representative of Renoir's work. Renoir is an impressionist, okay? And one scholar says, once again, liturgical interest and powerful storytelling skills combined to convey an impressionistic picture in Exodus. Now check this out. Trying to sort it out in a literal fashion or suggesting that Israel considered the detail to correspond precisely to reality is like retouching Renoir's paintings to make them look more like photographs. To do so would be to destroy what he is attempting to create for us. And this is one instance where I wish that we had the big screen here, but hopefully you can dial in and see that this impressionistic paintings, if you've ever been to like the Museum of Art in Philly or in New York or where have you, and you've seen some of this, it like it moves you. It creates something in you. And it cannot be replicated by a photograph. Now, we've got some photographers in the room tonight, and there are ways that they can move us as well, but it's, it's markedly different from, from this. Not one is better or worse, but the feelings that are um, brought on. And here, what this person is at least trying to let us see, this is Terence Fretheim uh, writing in his commentary to Exodus, that when we understand Exodus 14 and the Red Sea crossing in this impressionistic way where it kind of grabs us, that there's things that we can learn about who God is and who we are and how we should be living in response to that. That's how I want to frame this talk this evening. I've got a handful of points here. I also have Josh Revel in the back that is giving me signals every 10 minutes, okay? I've already seen one of them, and I am anxiously anticipating the next one, okay? So here, we're thinking about the impressionistic understanding of this text and what we can learn from it. I just want to walk us through a little bit to to pick out some of the details here in this passage. Now, I know that you can't see this or read this, and I apologize for that, um, but I'll read it for you. It says that Yahweh arranges the confrontation as an exhibition of enormous power. This confrontation between Yahweh and Pharaoh he arranges it not for the sake of Israel in this passage. This is, this is crazy. The final decisive intention is not Israelite freedom, but this is what we have been talking about ever since we started looking at this book. Israel is enslaved and they're in servitude and they're in bondage and they need to be freed. But here in this climactic moment, he doesn't necessarily say much about that. It's not for the sake of Israel. The final decisive intention is not Israelite freedom, but Yahweh's glory. That is the motive underlying this massive display of power in the splitting of the Red Sea. And he says that this display is decisive. 
the outcome of the power struggle, which Yahweh will win, is that Pharaoh in all his recalcitrance shall come at last to know I am Yahweh. This is why the text has kept saying over and over, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And it's for this purpose that they will know who I am. By the end of this, when all is said and done, they will know that I am the Lord. And this seems to be the motivating factor behind this. The text says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And even before that, uh, looking in the beginning verses of this story, and this is another one of these historical difficulties, because at the end of chapter 13, it says that God is leading these people out in the wilderness because if they see war, they might turn back. But here in chapter 14, it says that he is leading them in this way. It says, you should set up camp in front of um, Baal Zephon, uh, in front of it by the sea. Pharaoh will think to himself, the Israelites are lost and confused in the land, and the desert has trapped them. I'll make Pharaoh stubborn, and he'll chase them. So it seems like this is one big setup where God is making these people kind of go this way and then wander around in the desert, and then Pharaoh's going to say, hey, man, they don't know what they're doing. Let's go get them. And the text says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And for any rational person in the room, this one stings. We keep hearing about it. But I at least want to propose to you, and I don't think that this solves every bit of this problem, but I do think it's helpful that in this passage and throughout, God is not giving Pharaoh a completely different heart or mind. Pharaoh has shown himself to be throughout this story one who does not like Israel and wants them to be in this place of service so that his empire can be built and grown so that his name and his renown can be seen throughout the land. And God is furthering this along, yes, but it's not coming out of nowhere. And that's the best I got. It's not coming out of nowhere. Where it seems like in this passage, and we've talked about the use of this verb occurs 20 times, 10 times it's used for Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and 10 times it's used for God hardening Pharaoh's heart. But this isn't something that God is just imposing upon him that's completely contrary to his nature. Especially when you look at this next set of verses where it talks about Pharaoh wanting to go get them. There's no use of this word. It's only after Pharaoh says, we need to go get them and bring them back that God is actually doing the hardening of his heart here. But it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh, or you could say um, by Pharaoh or against Pharaoh and all of his army and the Egyptians, and all of them will know that I am the Lord. This whole display is meant to show God's glory and his power. And as 21st century postmodern Americans, we don't necessarily understand that. But for an ancient audience, they would have seen this and understood this and recognized this as the battle between the gods and Israel's God is reigning supreme over all. The story continues. It says, uh, this is towards the end of the story where uh, the Egyptians have followed the Israelites into the sea and it says that God jams the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Everything that God has said up to this point, they will see. They will know. My glory will be made known to them. And here, right before the end, they seem to get it. The Lord is fighting. We've got to get out of here because we cannot do anything with this. Not one of them survived. The best I can do for us in this is to just 
jump onto the coattails of scholars that have gone before me where one would say God is not as tame as we would like him to be in this story. And again, for an ancient audience, I don't think that this would be as problematic for them as it is for us. And remember, the point of this story is to to see God's glory and God's power on display here so that people would know who he is. But we also have to deal with the difficult uh, underlying nature of this passage, that God is not tame, that God is not necessarily safe. There's that classic line in the Chronicles of Narnia where one character that's an animal that talks that I don't know says he's not safe Aslan's not safe but he's good and people come back to this and and can use the same language about about God God is not tame or God is not safe but God is good God is fair God is just and that's the best I can do that's the impression that this passage gives us is one of God's glory and we in our current context we have to deal and wrestle with that in the best way that we can now we talked about this last week but this is the the Israelites as they see Egypt approaching it says as Pharaoh approached the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them they were terrified and they cried out to the Lord one scholar says such defiance is inevitable it is the normal response of people who are embarking on a journey away from the familiar however abhorrent it may be into the unknown, so says Carol Myers from Duke. This is expected. When you look in front of you and you've got nowhere to go, you look behind you and these enemies are bearing down on you, such defiance, this being terrified and crying out to God, it's expected and it's the normal response in the midst of your specific moment in time. Now, this isn't really what I want to do with this passage um, all told, but I at least want to pause here for a second and acknowledge something in the room here. When the stuff hits the fan in your life, when the relationships break apart, when the finances do not work out, when you don't get into the school or the program or the graduate program or what have you, when, when this doesn't happen for you or even on something on a bit grander scale, when you're in the hospital waiting room, when you're at the graveside service, it is okay for you to demonstrate acts of defiance. It is okay for you to pull your hair a bit and to say, where are you? What are you doing? What is going on here? I think in the American church, we've kind of made you clean up your face a bit and walk out real strong and tall and smile and shake your hand and be like, hey, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, when you're not fine. Because we haven't created a context where it's okay for you to be not fine. When you have a sea in front of you and you have the Egyptian army behind you, it is okay for you to be in the midst of that. And the normal response even of those moments in your life give you the right to ask these questions. This is why we have the book of Psalms, which has maybe two-thirds of the individual Psalms in that collection are laments or petitions where the psalm singer is saying, how long, O Lord, are you going to do this? Where are you? I'm in the middle of almost death. In fact, I have gone down to Sheol. I am in the realm of the, the dead, and you're nowhere to be found. And 99 out of 100 of those turn the corner and say, yet I will trust you. But there's one, Psalm 88, which ends, darkness is my closest friend. It is okay for you in the midst of your struggles, 
be they as big as this, where Israel feels they have nowhere to go, or in the midst of your own perhaps more minor inconveniences, it's okay for you to have that communication with God where you say, what's going on here? And you begin to ask questions, you begin to petition, you begin to lament. Such defiance is inevitable. They say to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt to leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. I don't know if you picked up on this, but Walter Brueggemann does in their three angry questions to Moses. They utter the name or derivative of Egypt five times, and it's only because this is the only name that they know, the name upon which they rely, the name they love to sound. They're on the brink of freedom, but they keep saying, we want to go back. We would rather be where we came from because at least we know that. At least we know what our schedule is. At least we know that when we wake up at six, we got to go out and get this many bricks and we've got to go do this and do that. At least we know, at least we have food and water, but now we're out here and the sea's in front of us and they're behind us and they want to kill us. And what are you doing, Moses? And we hit on this last week, just a, a touch, that there are moments in our life when we begin to step out, and I see it in some of you already, in the, the flags that you have planted in the ground, you say, I'm gonna follow Jesus, and then you take a step out, and you get hit in the face with something, because it's hard. But do not, do not, do not revert back simply because it's easy. <laughs> Find that community, find those people where you can begin to walk in lockstep together toward the goal of building the kingdom here on earth. There's this impression that we see here in this passage of Israel trying to deal with all this stuff. And I think that we can gain a little bit in our own lives and in, in at least the example that they give us. And it's not a great example, but it at least allows us the freedom to sound some of the things that we have to say. But now we can focus on Moses and his response to these people. He says, do not be afraid. This is classic language that angels and whoever is using in the midst of like theophanic visions. When God is close by, they say, don't be afraid. It's okay. And Moses is joining that choir here. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. This is kind of a military term, but Israel has no chance here from a, a military perspective. And Moses even goes beyond that saying, stand firm and you will see the deliverance or the salvation that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. And then we get this classic line. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You can imagine that crocheted on a pillow, right? It sounds so good. Or like a t-shirt with an eagle flying off of a cliff in the sunset. Like, just be still. God's got your back. He will fight for you. It's kind of like kind of intense you know you just go into the store mind your own business and you got a shirt that says God will fight for you and I, whatever it, it, like you, you you see this and you, you hear the devotional language the scholars want to push us beyond that um, again Fretheim says this is not a word asking that the people not move a muscle it's not a call for passivity as if angels will come and carry them across the sea it's a word calling for silence I like this one because it's a bit more harsh this is not a word of comfort that says something about me doesn't it I like this because it's more harsh. Sorry. Uh, this is not a word of comfort. Rather, this is a terse, impatient command on Moses' part. In Hebrew, the last part of the verse is a mere two words which are best translated as you be quiet or shut up. The Lord will fight for you. Zip it. I'm tired of your junk. 
got stuff to do. And here, it, it seems that Moses, what he's urging people to do is to see what God is about to do on their behalf. And God even himself continues on in this by saying, tell the Israelites, it's time to go. You've got the enemy behind you, you've got the sea in front of you, but tell them, the, the word there is like, to journey. Tell them, we got stuff to do, and we're about to go someplace, Moses. Spread out your hands and split this sea because we're going to the other side. And you can see how this story would create a resonance and a remembrance in these people of, of a past that was indicative of, of the redemption that God can can bring about for them. We have this impression as we look at this story of a God who is powerful and a God who is concerned and a God who is invested in us. When we have the sea in front of us and the army behind us and God says, it's time to go. Trust me. And I think when it comes down to it within the Christian community, that is our most difficult command to follow. Trust the Lord, where he is leading you, especially looking out to this room with so many people kind of in that in-between stage with what is next in my life. And I think that God is saying, trust me, I will be with you. Yeah, but I got this option, I got that option. It's cool. I will be with you. Trust me. If this can be the word that is said to Israel in the midst of certain danger and death, I believe that this can be the word to us in the midst of our lives today where we are looking at different options and God says, trust me, but you gotta go because I'm taking you somewhere. And finally, it says that as this story unfolds, when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him. And oddly, it says, and they put their trust in Moses, his servant. When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is a familiar passage. For most of you in this room, you have heard this. For most of you in this room, you have seen the movie. For most of you in this room, you've colored the sheets as kids. You know this story inside and out. But tonight, I hope that we can at least bring it into a more um, personal understanding where we see the God who is able to split the sea on behalf of his people. That's the same God that is invested in you. That's the same God that has sent his son to bring about redemption for us. This is the same God who allows us to have his spirit. This is the same God who says, go, it's time to journey on. Trust me. I hope that tonight, whatever it is that you have in front of you and whatever it is that you have behind you, that you're able to see that this is a story rooted in Israel's past where God has demonstrated himself to be powerful and present. But just as throughout the Old Testament, people kept looking back and they said, God, do that again. Do that for us here and now in the midst of whatever difficulty it is that you're going through. I hope that we can look back to that event and say, just as you delivered these people, deliver me. Now, one of the cool things as Christians is we don't just look back to the Exodus. We don't just look back to this moment, this pivotal moment in Israel's history where they had the Egyptian army behind them and they had the sea in front of them and God splits it and leads them into freedom and life and hope. We also can look back in our history and see a cross. And we can see Jesus sacrificing himself for us. 
And the, the life and the hope that Israel was granted by God splitting the sea is granted to us immeasurably more by our belief and our commitment to following Jesus as Lord and saying, I will go wherever it is that you are leading me to go. I will do whatever it is that you are asking me to do. I will become an agent of justice and hope and reconciliation. I will become one who demonstrates mercy and forgiveness. I will become that because you have been that for me. It's my hope tonight that as we look back to this Exodus story, we can be reminded of the Exodus that we have been through as followers of Jesus. Looking back not just to the split sea, but to the empty tomb that grants us life and hope. And even in the midst of those doubts and those difficulties that will come, God still whispers to us, trust me. I'm hopeful that tonight that wherever you are, you remember and you remember well that you have a God that will fight for you. You just need to shut up. He will be present. He will be with you. All he wants from us is trust to move. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.